back to your seats. And if you have your Bibles today, if you brought them with you or you have the app on your phone, I'd invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 43. I'm going to begin by reading our text before we get into it together today. I'm going to read from Isaiah 43, verses 16 to 21. Says this, this is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. This is the word of the Lord. We'll get into that in a minute, um, but I just wanted to have that read for us to set the tone and the pace for our time together. Uh, as was said earlier, my name is Brad. For those I haven't had the chance to meet before, I am the pastor at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood of Vancouver. We're on this kind of crazy journey of replanting and revitalizing this over 130-year-old church community in our city, and it's really exciting. Uh, and I've been able to, through this process, become friends with Alex. He's been an incredible support. And I feel like I've been at Cascades enough times now that I feel like I'm going from being Alex's friend to a friend of Cascades. I feel like that's happened. So uh, I hope you're okay with that because I've been here a few times and I don't know if you're going to get rid of me. I'm not sure. <laughs> you have to take that up with Alex, honestly. Uh, but it's so good to be here. Like I said, our, our kind of replant project that we're in is in a really exciting moment right now. This summer, we're, we're working towards together. We have this church community that's been meeting for a long time, and we have this launch team of people that are excited to come be part of the next chapter of the story. And this summer, we're doing a bunch of bringing those two things together, which is not easy work. It's pastoral work. It's relational work. And so we're doing this, and we've had, we're doing once monthly uh, preview services on Sunday evening, and we've had a couple of those. They've been absolutely amazing and encouraging. We're doing prayer walks together around Mount Pleasant. So just to give an update, as I've been a few times, and, and it's been at different stages of the journey, we're in a really exciting moment, and I just want to say thank you to you, Cascades Church, for being a church in Vancouver that exists with a heart for what God's doing here on a broader scale. Um, with a heart for asking the questions of how can we work together to do far more than we could ever do on our own, even purely as Cascades Church. But instead supporting and championing one another for the sake of the name of Jesus being proclaimed in our city. I think that's such an important perspective to hold. It's what we're excited about going forward, and so it's so good to be here with you again. Um, this is ultimately what matters. It's the kingdom of God at work in our city. This is what matters. And so I'm thankful for churches like Cascades.
share in this vision. In this pursuit, we pray jointly and we pray together, shoulder to shoulder, side by side. We pray that, that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven. So we're on a joint mission together. So to that end and to begin, let me just pray for us and for our time together and then we'll, we'll dig into the word. Lord God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Lord, thank you for this time this morning together. Thank you for the time we've already shared, a time of worship, just responding to your good work in our lives through joyful song. Lord, we thank you that by your Holy Spirit you are here with us this morning as we gather. That we don't just come to a room, to a building, and expect something to be different just because we're in a different space. We come here, Lord, and we know that as we gather, you are present and active and working. And Lord, you desire to teach us, to transform us by the preaching of your word. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring these words to life in our midst today. That you would work in our hearts, in the deepest places of our hearts, things that we're wrestling with and don't share with anyone, things that we're hiding, maybe things that we haven't told anybody about, things that that we're struggling with or working through or the things in our lives that are ever present on the forefront of our minds. Holy Spirit, do a a deep work in us today. I pray that the words for each person in this room that they need to hear, Lord, will be the words they remember, that you would draw those to mind, all for your glory. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I'm noticing <laughs> we had a little, uh, our, our second child is due in September, uh, and our friends threw us a little uh, baby shower at the beach last night, and I'm realizing my voice is quite, quite affected from that. So anyway, it's a little throaty today. Bear with me. I, I am a child of the 90s. And as a child of the 90s, being raised in the church, I came of age in the afterglow of the legends of Christian music that were DC Talk. Anybody, anybody, yeah, anybody, hands up, you don't have to be ashamed. Big DC Talk fans. All right. There's a few. There's a few. In 1990, DC Talk released a song that was called New Thang. New thing. No, not new thing. No. New N-U thing. And if you didn't understand DC Talk before, now you do. It's making more sense. But this song, New Thing by DC Talk, was based on the text that I just read a few minutes ago. And it was a fan favorite. It was a fan favorite. It inspired a generation. It inspired young and old across the world including a young man in a video that went viral on the internet years later. It's been a personal favorite video of mine for years. And I'm not sure, do we have a video clip? If if we have it, we can show it. Okay, we have it. Do we have audio? Otherwise, I can just reenact it for us. Look at his shirt, though. <laughs> if it's, if it's no big deal. We can, we can move right along. 
it, it doesn't contribute that much to our, our time today. Yeah, that does, though. Look at that, man, that outfit. Anyway, we can, we can, move, we can move right along. The long and short of it, I mean, you got, you got the really good stuff. You got the visuals. Uh, the long and short of it is this kid is singing his rendition of DC Talk's new thing and just it goes on for some time doing this quite elaborate dance. It's amazing. It's very 80s, early 90s. And no, it isn't, that wasn't me, uh, just to clarify. But it's funny because as this young man dances along with this song that like you, you wonder how much he really understands and knows what he's singing and saying. As he dances along with this song and he's rejoicing in what he understands to be the good news of God's new work. Or at least he's rejoicing in the sick beat. But somehow, as he's dancing about the truth of this new work that God's doing, somehow I doubt that this kid was contemplating just how paradoxical it might be, or might seem, for God to do a whole new thing, to work in a whole entirely new way. If you've been following Jesus for a while, hopefully you've navigated through the fact that Christian doctrine is full of things that we believe where we hold what seem like paradoxes in the faith space of divine mystery. We get pretty used to and comfortable with this space. If faith is new to you, maybe these are some of the things that have caused confusion or tension for you. We believe in a God who is both three and at the same time one, perfectly. We believe in a Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, who is both fully God and fully man, perfectly both simultaneously. We believe in a God who is both transcendent, above and before all things, so utterly beyond and distinct from his creation, and yet who is also imminent, near to us, present, in the dirt with his people. And somehow he is both of those things perfectly and simultaneously. We believe in a God who is both perfectly just in ways that we can't even comprehend, but who is also love. He is love and exudes grace, and he is somehow both of these things perfectly at the same time. And that's just a, a quick smattering of the ones that come to mind quickly. But we as Christians become used to holding these intellectual categories in the posture of faith and divine mystery. And I see it as God is thankfully, and I mean that thankfully, beyond our capacity to perfectly place him into neat human categories. I'm actually really thankful for that. But the point is, for many people, the message of what I just read for us from Isaiah creates another one of those paradoxes in our minds. The fact that God claims here and elsewhere throughout the library of Scripture that he is constantly in the process and in the work of doing a new thing and of making all things new. He's doing a new thing, a thing that is different from before. His ways or his methods, his way of operating in the world and operating with us has changed. That he wants to do a new thing in our time. Now, meanwhile, if you've been a student of Scripture, perhaps you've sung songs or read texts 
in church that sound like Hebrews 13, verse 8, where it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or in the Old Testament, God reveals himself to the prophet Malachi and declares about himself boldly, I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3, verse 6. This fundamentally unchanging sameness of God is a core glue that holds together the whole fabric of our theology. It's vital. We can't do without it. It holds together our understanding of who God is and how he operates. Without it, we would be left profoundly confused. And like I said, we have, my wife and I have our, our second child on the way in September. Our first is our daughter named Wesley. She's two. She turns three, also in September. And I was away for five days in Mexico last month, officiating a wedding there, away from my wife and, and daughter. And I came back, and, and when you're a parent with a two-year-old, when you're away for a few days, you come back and you, you kind of don't know the lay of the land. You know, like, what, what's been, what, what are they working on? What have they been working on these last few days? What are kind of like the rules that have been established or laid out recently? You drop back in and you have no idea. So I came back from Mexico and I was spending the day with my daughter and we're sitting on the bed and I brought over some goldfish crackers. And we're having this great time together, sharing in this snack we both love, sitting on mom and dad's bed. It was wonderful. And it was a real moment. And then my wife comes in and my wife just says, Wesley... What did we say about eating food on the bed? And my daughter looks and I can see, like, she knows. She knows better. And I'm just thinking, oh, man, did not realize we were working on that the last few days. So we're sitting there enjoying our goldfish. My daughter feels this deep shame in that moment, and I just kind of keep my mouth shut. (laughs) All right. I guess I let my daughter take the fall. But, but when, when, there's, when there's difference and change and there's not a unity, there's, it can be confusing and impossible to know how to relate to your circumstances. As a parent, you create chaos when you change how you operate towards your kid day to day. So for my poor daughter in that moment, so much confusion. Am I allowed to eat on the bed or am I not? When the parental godhead, and we don't call ourselves that at home, I promise, But when the, to use the concept, when the parental Godhead is inconsistent and opposed from one another and changing all the time, it creates a lot of confusion for our kids. The same extends to God. So if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he does not change. That's so key for us to understand who he is. And yet he then is telling us to forget the things of the past because he is doing a new thing. He is making all things new. This can be seen as another faith-space divine paradox. What do we do with this? And much like God's transcendence and his imminence, or his justice and his grace, what often ends up happening is that we Christians can almost end up pitting these attributes of God against each other and then picking sides. We do this so well. So some will find a much deeper sense of comfort in the imminence of God, the fact that he is near to us. 
And they'll end up over-indexing that attribute of who God is against well beyond his transcendence, his greatness, his power, his holiness, his holy otherness. Others will do the exact opposite, and they'll find much greater comfort over here. And we might even end up in wars over it. Evangelical Twitter is a battlefield over these exact kind of things, if you've ever spent time on it. We certainly do this as Christians with God's grace and his justice. And I don't think I need to explain a lot how that one plays out, but it's ugly. We pit these attributes of God against each other and pick sides. But in a similar way, comfort can be found on either side of the new thing paradox as well. We can find much greater comfort or enthusiasm on one side over the other. And it can very easily and quickly have an impact on how we live life and how we make decisions and how we expect God to work in our lives and in our church. On a morning like this, there will be people representing both extremes of this and everywhere in between. And so to lay out the extremes just really quickly, this is kind of what we can do with with this quote-unquote paradox. One extreme is God doesn't change, the the message doesn't change, the method doesn't change. This is one extreme. And this comes from an honest place, right? Life is a complex business. From the moment we make our entrance into the world, one painful experience after another impresses the complexity of life upon us. So one way that we have learned to manage this complexity, especially as Christians in a world that feels like it's pushing up against us in newly challenging ways all the time, one of the ways we've learned to manage this complexity is to find the things that have worked in the past, hold on to them with tenacity, and then dig a trench into the ground. This is one of the ways we cope with the complexity of our culture. We hold on to these things, these methods, the things and the ways that we've done things in the past, and we dig a trench, and we say, I'm comfortable here. God's used these methods to do great things before, and he's unchanging, right? So why should we? Changing things we've done before is really just caving into the culture anyway, right? God's message is eternal, and it transcends culture, so they should adapt to us. And now, none of this is without truth. I want that to be known this morning. But the trouble with this extreme far too often comes when we find ourselves ultimately existing in our little trench, holding on to these ways and methods. But no one outside of the trench knows or cares that we exist. And the unquestioned good news here is that God is faithful and unchanging. He will always be consistent with himself. He will never be arbitrary and heartless. Who he is will always be who he is. But that does not mean that he must always repeat himself. He will do things in whole new ways. Now the other extreme is equally insidious. The other extreme says, out with the old, new is always better. Out with the old, new is always better. Novelty for its own sake is another extreme. And the idea that God's character and nature are somehow also up for grabs. 
And ultimately, it's this loose holding to the person of God that says that God has constantly been changing how he does things and what he's about. So throw the past away. What's the point in even holding on to it at all? Our cultural moment needs a new God and a whole new church. And some kind of spiritual amnesia sets in. And this is the other extreme. With all that said, with all that said, what if I told you this morning that this way of separating these attributes of God has it all wrong in the very first place? What if I told you that this paradox is not actually a paradox at all? But instead, that God has always, eternally, true to his nature, drawn his people to himself and to renewal in new way after new way after new way. That newness has from old actually always been what God was about. And we don't have time to, to go on this thorough journey through the whole story of Scripture to make this point. And some of you are rejoicing internally right now that I said that. But even from creation, if we think about creation, God made all things new from nothing, out of the overflow of his divine being, of his love, because that is who he is. Creation is ground zero of God doing a whole new thing. And then he places mankind in a garden, which, says a little aside, is a very interesting place to place mankind as it implies cycles and seasonal growth and regrowth and renewal, God always, even before the fall, desired his people to experience life with him with renewal and newness. He placed them in a garden. And then after the fall, after mankind's kind of ruined that whole experience, and the garden is no longer their context, God's relationship with his people, as we read through scripture, is constantly leading them toward him, and his way through new method after new method. He gave them the law, this precious gift that he gave to his people. A sacrificial system to understand him and to know him, but to experience renewal and restoration every year. A whole new way of relating to God that they would never have expected. Over the course of time, he used prophets, priests, and kings, healthy ones and unhealthy ones, he used military victories, and he used military defeats to draw his people into himself. He used great power, and then he also worked through incredible weakness. He worked renewal through a promised land experience, and then he worked renewal through exile from that promised land. And in our text that I read from Isaiah 43, God recalls a bunch of that history to mind. If you notice, he brought up the Exodus story and the way that he worked in the past. The way that his people would hear and really respond to. He brings a bunch of that to mind. He reminds them of how he rescued them from Egypt, how he used Babylon and exile to renew his people. But what's fascinating is that when you look into this prophetic text in Isaiah 43 where God's revealing himself to his people through Isaiah, and God's opening up how he worked in the past, and this new thing that he's doing, he tells them to forget the past. Look, it says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. 
See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? But then see how he starts to describe the new thing that he's doing. He says, I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. It's beautiful imagery. It's a beautiful picture. But maybe it, le- it means very little for you and for me today. But for the people receiving this prophetic word from Isaiah, people of the nation of Israel, likely in the time period of the divided kingdom in their history, this imagery that God gives here to describe the new thing that he's doing would have brought a lot to mind. It would have brought so much to mind. God making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland, if you know their story well, is quite descriptive of actually how God had worked over and over and over again in the story of the nation of Israel. In their past, leading up to this point, this is how God had worked so many times. God's work in Abraham's life had looked like this. He had made a way for his people through countless wilderness and desert wanderings. He had led Elijah to streams in the wilderness, if you know that story. So on and so on. The list is very long. So when God says, forget the past, I'm doing something new and here's what it is. It's making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. That may have actually been quite confusing For the people receiving this prophecy. Like, more of the same then, God? Okay, I guess more of the same. So why say it at all? What's going on here and why does it mean anything for us? See, God is saying, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I do not change. God's pointing both backward and forward. And he's saying... Actually, renewal is what I have always been about. What God has always done for the people of Israel is provide a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. But how he has done that has been through new way after new way after new way. But now, in this prophecy of Isaiah, God points prophetically to the ultimate work of renewal that he will inaugurate the new creation, and begin the kingdom process of making all things new. He's pointing forward to this ultimate work of renewal. And the ultimate new fulfillment of this way in the wilderness that he talks about, the cosmic stream of living water in the barren wasteland, is to be Jesus himself. This prophecy in Isaiah is pointing ahead to the grand renewal that Jesus would bring and inaugurate. In our aimless wandering, searching for purpose and meaning and significance, companionship, security, sustenance, life, all the things that we search and long for, God would do a whole new thing. And in the form of his son Jesus, God would break into the world and provide the way in the thick, dark wilderness, and the well of living water, a drink from which and you'll never thirst again. God coming to earth in the form of a man, we're used to it. We're used to this concept. But God coming to earth in the form of a man was the new thing of all new things no one would have imagined. 
A complete obliteration of how anyone in history would ever have expected that God could work. Jesus would be the ultimate resurrection and new life. The beginning of new creation, renewing and restoring the old creation. The kingdom of God breaking in on earth as it is in heaven. And inviting us into this work of resurrection and new life that he'd begun. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. We ourselves and our lives are a picture of the new thing God is doing. Jesus and his gift of new life in a kingdom built for eternity is the new thing that he's doing. The gospel is the new thing, the good news. And Jesus is also the fulfillment of the work that God has been doing in his people all along, from the very beginning. The good news of Jesus is also just a renewed method of the work that God has always been about. The point is that God is saying, it is fundamental to my very being, to who I am in all of eternity, to be a God of renewal, a God who is doing new things, who is making all things new. And friends, this work continues even in our time. Jesus continues to work resurrection in the things that he's made, and he invites us into that work. But this work, this new work of renewal, may look nothing like the former ways and nothing like we would expect. One commentator put it this way, quote, The reason for calling the people's attention to the exodus, like God does in this prophecy, and then telling them to forget the former things, is that God wants us to learn things about his character and nature from the past, but not to enshrine or worship the methods of the past. He wants us to learn things about his character and nature from the past, but not to enshrine the methods of the past. See, much like the Jewish leaders living in Jesus' day, that he opposed quite often, I think we so often miss what God is doing currently in our world, in the church, in our own lives, because it doesn't look like we expect it to. And it doesn't look like it did last time, or it has before. To use the language of the, of the religious leaders of Jesus' time, we expect our ritual sacrificial system to be the way that God always continues to work in our world. And we push back against methods of a new day. We can live with deep skepticism about the works of renewal that a new generation or a different person might be celebrating. And it causes a lot of tension. Even in a church here like Cascades with beautiful history, some of us here may find ourselves with discomfort about newness of things. New ways of doing certain things. New things are not usually easy. We have a hard time with change. Instead, we'd rather find comfort in clinging to the extremes of the paradox. We find that more comforting. That God works this way and he is the same eternally. So my discomfort must be righteous. Instead, 
What if the sameness of God lies in the very truth that what God has always been about is newness? That one of the very things that marks God's eternal character is his work and pursuit of renewal, of making all things new. The paradox is not a paradox. The newness really is among God's old faithful attributes. And what if he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he continues to work in this way? And that work is far from done in our day. And he's far from done in us, and he's far from done in you. In Jesus, he has made the ultimate way in the wilderness and stream in the wasteland. But he continues to make a way in your wilderness and streams in our world's wasteland. He has made us new and he is making us new. There is hope on the horizon. Hope for your struggles and your fears. There's hope for the overwhelming state of the world we live in. I listen to a short daily news podcast every day and often I'm just blown away by the amount of massive scale things that we can talk about every day. It's overwhelming. But God is making beautiful things out of the broken places in our world. God is making beautiful things out of our broken lives. He is leading us toward streams in our desert. There's hope on the horizon because the end game is beautiful life in the new heavens and new earth. And its assurance is the resurrected Jesus, the embodiment of the desert street, leading us toward resurrection. And nowhere is this more emphasized than in Revelation 21. Revelation 21, the very end of the biblical account, it says this in 21.5, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The end of the biblical account, God is saying, Behold, I am making all things new. Yesterday, today, and forever, beginning at creation to end in Revelation 21, even in the end, God is in the business of the renewal of all things. And he's doing that work in us. The paradox is no paradox at all. If we believe in the God who is eternally the same and never changes, then that means we believe in the God who eternally works in renewal who is evermore doing a new thing. Daryl Johnson wrote this. He's brilliant on the book of Revelation. He wrote this about that text in Revelation 21. He says, God says from the throne, I am making all things new. God does not say, as I have wrongly read the words most of my life, I am making all new things. For years, the future meant for me God scrapping everything of the old creation and starting over with a whole new plan. I am making all new things, is how I read it. Now certainly God can make all new things, and I believe will and does, and we are called to join God in it. But the point of Revelation 21 and 22 is that God is taking hold of all things, creation, humans, and cities, and making them new. New creation means that God in Christ is making all things new and inviting us to participate in the work. To practice resurrection. To seek out the ways in which he is doing this work in our world, in our church, 
in the church in our city and to partner with him in that work. Makoto Fujimura wrote this, Our failure is not that we chose earth over heaven. It is that we fail to see the divine in the earth, already active and working, pouring forth grace and spilling glory into our lives. Friends, we want to be a church, we want to be a people who see the divine work in the earth, in the work that he is already doing. But see the active work of God working resurrection in our midst, in our city. And a people who see ourselves as active participants with Jesus in his work of making all things new. People who practice resurrection in our world. In Jesus, God has done the perfect new thing. He's given the ultimate way in a cosmic wilderness. He's opened an abundant stream in our desperate wasteland. And he continues to draw us toward that stream while we wandered thirsty in the desert. He has abundantly more fulfilling things in store for our church and for our neighborhood and for our city than our own expectations can perceive. God is doing a new thing and he says, behold, I'm doing it. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? And I think perhaps the better question, it's a heartbreaking one, but perhaps the better question is, are we even looking? Are we even looking to see the new thing that God is doing? So I just want to close by asking very open-ended, broad questions. Just what does this look like? What would this look like? What does it look like for you today? As a church, in this moment in your story, in this neighborhood you find yourselves in, in this cultural moment, this time and place, you're here for a reason, on purpose. What does it look like to begin to think as a church, what is God doing? And maybe it looks nothing like it has before. But what is the new thing that God is doing and how do we join in on this? In your own lives, your own spiritual stories. What is the new thing God is doing? You're in this incredible series in the fruit of the Spirit this summer. God is working these attributes, these characteristics out in your life by His Spirit. What does it look like to see that played out? What does it look like to join and partner in with the Holy Spirit in bringing these fruit to be, this fruit to bear in your life? What would it look like to look for what God is doing? What is the thing that God is doing in your marriage? And how do I partner in with that? In your work, in your budgets, in the rhythms of your everyday life. How is God bringing renewal? What is the new thing that he's doing? And how do I join him in the work in our city? I want to leave you with that thought and pray for us before we transition into communion together. Let me pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, we praise you for the fact that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, thank you that we have your trustworthy nature and character to rely on and to build our lives upon, knowing you are unshaking. You are eternal. Lord, that provides such stability and peace in the midst of chaos and complexity in a world like ours, and we thank you for that, Lord. 
But God, we also thank you and praise you that you are a God who does new things, who, who works renewal and restoration in our lives and in our world. And Lord, we, we cry out, we long to see you do that in our lives, in our church, and in our city, in our time. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done here in Vancouver as it is in heaven, here at Cascades as it is in heaven. Lord, do that work. Come, Holy Spirit. Show us and reveal to us what it looks like to partner and participate in that work. Transform our lives. Make us fruit of the Spirit people. Holy Spirit, bring that about in our lives and in our church. And show us, Lord, the new ways you're doing this. What do you want our church and our city to look like in this time for this place in such a time as this? Have your way in us, Lord. We pray, come Holy Spirit. We love you, Jesus, and we love you because you first loved us. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.